Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without mother or father or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Go before the Lord in prayer. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. All the gods of the nations are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Majesty and splendor are before you, Father. Might and strength are in your presence. And all the Families of the earth are to ascribe to you the glory that is due to your name, and I pray that we would do that here in this room today. I pray that we would look back over what you have done in history in this one little piece, this man named Melchizedek. I pray that we would be in awe of you who controls all things, and I pray that we would worship you. Father, please show us today the condition of our hearts, and please ignite our hearts, I pray, with passion with great passion to care about the things that you care about. In the mighty name of Jesus, I trust you for this time now. Amen. Well, beloved, today's message is a pop test. If you've been uh, worshiping here for the last few months, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you because I've warned you, but it is a test nonetheless, and the point of the test is this. We need to see how well our hearts responded to the rebuke and the encouragement of Hebrews chapter 5, 11 through 6, 20. In Hebrews 4 and 5, the author began to build this train of thought. It was a powerful train of thought, a very meaningful train of thought. And he was very passionate about it. And he's gaining more and more and more steam as he goes. But you get to chapter 5, verse 11, and he feels compelled to completely stop the train. He feels compelled to put the brakes on and completely stop his entire train of thought because he was concerned 
that his first readers did not have a heart to receive the things he was about to say, and that was very concerning to him. He was concerned that they had become lazy in their ears, or dull of hearing as the ESV puts it. And that is to say that they had lost their desire to press into the things of God, to care about the things of God, to cherish the things of God, to pursue the things of God. He was concerned that they had become content to live on milk like little babies do, rather than to cherish solid food and go after better things like adult people do, like mature people do, like growing people do. The Lord himself had a desire to reveal to his precious people some of the glorious things that he had done throughout the history of the world that really had a lot of impact on their particular lives, and yet the author was concerned that these people wouldn't care that they would be uninterested, that they would consider his arguments boring or irrelevant, that they would say, why don't you talk about something more more directly relating to our lives? And so he had to stop and rebuke them. If I can put it positively, the author deeply desired that his readers would be eager to receive and hear the Word of God. He wanted them to have passion for God, real, deep, abiding passion. You see this in chapter 6, 9 to 12 there. He just wants them to have passion. He wants them to be willing to seek and rejoice in the things of God. He wants them in the real ebb and flow of their lives, not just in a service like this where you're supposed to say stuff like this, but in the real ebb and flow of their lives. He wanted them to to long to have insight into the things of God and to rejoice in the things that God had done throughout history. And so, even though he had rebuked them, he also encouraged them. And if you read that text again carefully, you'll see he has a lot of encouragement for his people in those words. And he did that because he knew that no matter what the current state of their hearts were, that they really did have a heart to follow God. And basically, he's just trying to... Whoops, I forgot that my microphone was here. Sorry, I'll slap this side. That's really the function that I see in 511 to 620. He's trying to wake them up. He's trying to get their attention. He has a sure hope that God will cause them to press on to maturity. He has a sure hope that God in Christ will an eternal salvation for them and that God will work out this salvation to the uttermost all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. There's no way that God is going to fail these people. God has made Jesus for them a sure and steadfast anchor for their souls and there is no anchor in heaven or on earth that is as strong as that anchor. And so having rebuked and encouraged these precious people, the author now returns to his, his train of thought. And you can see this really clearly by comparing chapter 5, verses 9 through 11 with the end of 6 and the beginning of 7. So if you'll flip over to chapter 5, I just want to read 9 to 11 and then I'll, I'll show you the connection. And being made perfect, he, that is Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's where the train had to stop. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing or lazy in your ears. So now turn to chapter 6, verse 19. And you see that he brings us back to the train of thought. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, A hope that enters into the holy place uh, or into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest 
forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there's the direct link. And then chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, dot, dot, dot. So he, he stopped to rebuke and encourage, and now he's continuing his train of thought because he's hoping with great hope that the rebuke has had its effect. So what about us? Well, we are now about to embark on a journey through four of the thickest theological chapters in the entire New Testament. Other than some of the sections of Romans, I don't think there's a more dense theological section of the Bible than Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. And we're about to spend the next three months going through these chapters together. And beloved, as, they do, as we do that, I'm telling you, this will be a test of the condition of our hearts before the Lord. This will be a test of whether we are milk people or solid food people. Remember a few weeks ago I talked to you about something that I called the Melchizedek meter. So here's how this meter works. It's beginning today and in the coming weeks as we talk about Melchizedek and the priesthoods and the two covenants and the tabernacle and the several things that we'll be looking at in the next three months. If you're interested, if you're engaged, if you care about the things of God and desire to have insight into the world as God sees the world, then you're probably a solid food maturing person who's pressing on to maturity. If, on the other hand, you are uninterested in Melchizedek and the priesthood and the covenants and the tabernacle and the many things that we'll be looking at, if you're unengaged and you're honestly more concerned about where you're going to have lunch than what the Lord is saying and trying to reveal to us as a people, then you're probably a milk person and you probably need to go back to Hebrews 5.11 to 6.20 and read it and meditate upon it until the Lord does a work in your heart because His desire and His design is to wake you up and call you to press into maturity. I'm telling you, Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 are a meter in your life of where your heart is at with God. Pay attention to your heart. Now, I want to I say that there are times in all of our lives when we come to church or whatever and we're just tired, we're distracted, We've been going through a hard thing or whatever, and we just find it hard to pay attention, right? Just this morning, I think God did this to, to give me an illustration. And during the first two songs, I'm sitting over there fighting with my flesh because right after church, I've got to go and have a meeting with someone, and I'm sitting there thinking in my mind, where do we want to go? Where should we meet? What should we eat? All this stuff. And I'm telling my flesh, I won't smack my cheek again. I'll smack my hand. I'm literally sitting over there rebuking my flesh. Pay attention. Pay attention to Jesus. There's time to think about sandwiches later. Right now, fix your eyes on the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. There's a fight in the Christian life, beloved. It's a normal, natural thing to have to tell our hearts to wake up and pay attention to Christ. And in fact, if you're the kind of person that recognizes this is happening in you, and you bring that heart to the Lord and try to do something about it, that's actually a sign that you're a solid food person, not that you're a milk person. So I don't want you to get the idea that I'm saying that if your mind wanders at any time over the next three months, you're a milky person. I'm not saying that. I'm really not saying that. But I am saying this, if in being honest with yourself, you have to admit that you could honestly care less about Melchizedek and the priesthood and the covenant and the tabernacle and all the things he's going to bring up in these chapters, then that is a pretty sure sign that you're living on milk and you need to grow up. 
You need to go back to 5.11 to 6.20 and meditate upon that until the Lord does a work in your heart. Beloved, it's time for us to grow up right now. The whole point of 5.11 to 6.20 was to get his readers ready for chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. And if we make little of these chapters, we miss the whole point of the rebuke and encouragement that he has issued that we spent four weeks meditating upon. So again, I'm just giving you a a sign that this is a test. The next 12 weeks of sermons basically are a test. Now with that, I am going to put my face forward and I'm going to preach through Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 over the next three months and I'm going to assume that you are the solid food type of people that I think you are. I'm going to assume that you have a passion to leave behind the elementary doctrines of Christ and press on to maturity. That's chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to assume that that's your heart. I'm going to assume that you all are more like the fruitful field of chapter 6, verse 7, than like the fruitless field of chapter 6, verse 8, because this is what I think about you. I've prayed many, many, many hours about all this, and I think the Lord sees you as a a growing and fruitful field, and I'm going to treat you like that. I'm going to proceed in the hope that God has won for us an eternal salvation, and he will bring us forward until the day of Christ Jesus, until his work is all the way done. And part of that work means that we need to understand how God sees the world. It's very different than how we see the world. And I'm going to assume that God's going to be doing that work in you. And a a final thing I'm going to assume is that you will not expect immediate application from these rich chapters to all of the particular details of your lives. I'm going to assume that you know this principle, that when our hearts are engaged in the things of God, they will soon enough become inflamed with love for God. When our hearts are engaged in the things of God, Soon enough, they'll become inflamed with, the, with love for God, and soon enough, we'll see the application of His wisdom to our lives. But sometimes the Lord just calls us to come into His world, forget about our world, and the applications don't come for weeks, sometimes for months. That takes faith, it takes patience, it takes maturity. And I'm going to proceed now and, and assume all of that about you because I honestly see that in you. And so, beloved, with that, Let's look to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, where I want to address two questions today. The first one is, who is Melchizedek? And the second one, which I'm going to address very briefly, is why should we care about him? So please look with me at chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. There the author writes this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So, who is Melchizedek? Well, he's only mentioned three times in the Bible. Such an important person, only three times is he mentioned. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. His name is used ten times in the Bible. Eight of those ten times, it's used in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. Otherwise, he's only mentioned in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. 
This week, I want to deal with Genesis 14, and next week, we'll deal with Psalm 110. So if you will, you keep your finger in Hebrews, because we'll be back there soon enough, but turn with me back to Genesis 14. And while you're turning, let me just sort of set the, set the scene here. In Genesis 13, we read the story of the separation of Abram and Lot, and you'll remember that Lot was Abram's nephew. So Abram, later called Abraham, he's the uncle, and then there is Lot, his nephew. Abraham was a very rich and successful man, and out of the graciousness of his heart, he had blessed his nephew, and he made Lot extremely rich and very successful, all right? And they're basically living in the same area. Over time, Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen began to dispute with one another because they felt that there was not enough land, or more to the point, they're fighting over the choicest of land, I'm sure. They want the right spots. And so Abraham is an older man. He's a wise man. He's a gracious man. He's a mature man. He takes his nephew Lot aside. And in great faith and maturity, he tells his nephew, who he has made very rich, he says, Lot, look at all of the land that is ours, and I'll tell you, you choose any of it that you want. You get the first choice, I'll deal with the leftovers. No problem. Beloved, that took a lot of faith. That took a lot of grace. That took a lot of patience. Lot's father had died, and Abraham raised this kid out of the kindness of his heart. Abraham made this kid rich out of the kindness of his heart, and now he's telling him, take whatever you want. I'll, I'll deal with the leftovers. What graciousness. Lot, being a younger man and full of himself, looked at the land, heard this gracious offer, saw this area that was, in fact, very fertile, and he chose the most fertile of all of the land. Abraham let him go, and Abraham settled for the rest. Not long after, God appeared to Abraham and said, listen, don't worry about it. All the land is yours. It's all yours. Don't worry, I'm in control. Well, Lot chose a very fertile land, but unfortunately for him, it was also filled with debauchery and violence. It was, after all, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, and isn't this a lesson for us? Sometimes the things that look so good to us They look so ripe, they look so fertile, so prosperous, they end up being the tail of the scorpion that stings us, and that's what happened to Lot for sure. Not long after Lot settled there, the kings of the north gathered, and they came down to the southern part of Israel, and they conquered all of the kings there, and they took their possessions back up to the north, and they took their people back up to the north, including Lot's. So now Lot had chosen this land where he thought he could prosper. He ends up being a prisoner of war and brought up to the north with all the things that used to belong to him that now belong to these kings. Abraham hears about what's happening and he immediately gathers a force of about 318 trained men and they went up by the power of God after these kings and by the grace of God they roundly defeated these kings they got back all of the spoils and more importantly they recaptured the prisoners of war including Lot so Abraham now becomes a a mighty king in such a way and he's got Lot back in his possession Abraham and his fellow soldiers and his spoils and all of the people that he had just recaptured are now traveling back into the south. And as they get in the area that is the south, they come to a place called the King's Valley. And in the King's Valley, the king of Sodom meets Abraham there. The king of Sodom had survived the initial battle and now he's there to meet Abraham, to thank him, and more importantly, to work out a deal to get his people back. So he wants his people back. He's there to work out a deal with Abraham. This is where Melchizedek comes in. Let's look at Genesis 14, starting at verse 17. 
After his return from the defeat of that king, whose name I will not try to pronounce, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of, the most, of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but the young men, uh, but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. So let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Okay, keep a finger or a piece of paper there. Let's go back to Hebrews 7 and let's see what the author has to say about this story. This is the beginning and the end of what we hear about Melchizedek. This is it. So what does the writer of Hebrews do here? We'll see next week that he also makes something of what David has to say about Melchizedek. But for now, let's just focus on Genesis 14. By my count, the author makes five specific assertions. First of all, he says that Melchizedek was a king and a priest of Salem. So as the kings of the south were gathering to congratulate Abraham and to get their things back, to work out that deal with him, Melchizedek was one of the kings that was there. He was the king over a city called Salem. So just get that in your mind. This is a real man who is a real king over a real city called Salem. It was probably Jerusalem. Some scholars think it was not. Most think it is, and I, I think it probably is Jerusalem. But more important than the location of the city is the fact that this man was both a king and he was a priest. Now that's very important. If you're a note taker, you need to note that down. He was a king and he was a priest. In the culture of that time, it was not unusual for men to fill both of these stations, that is in in Gentile cultures, to be both king and priest. But in the Jewish culture of that time and in times uh, after that, it was strictly forbidden by God that a man would be both the king and the priest of of a nation or of a city. It was, to put it in American terms, God's will to separate the powers because no man can handle having all political power and all religious power, which is almost total power over people. Our hearts are corrupt. And I've told you before, you've heard this saying that, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, I don't think that's true. I think that power displays corruption. Absolute power displays the corruption that was already in our hearts. It's already there. And so one way to mitigate corruption is to separate powers. And I think in the mind of God, he said, let one man be the king, let another man be the priest, but never let one man try to be both things. And in the Old Testament, there were three examples of people who tried to meld these offices, and they did so to to great, great effect. The Lord was very upset with them, and they paid a very high price for doing what God had told them not to do. So you have to understand, if you're a, a, a recipient of the letter to the Hebrews, 
And you're reading this thing that was written by a Jewish person to Jewish people. When you hear about a man who is both a king and a priest, this jumps off the page at you, and something inside you says, this isn't right. Something's not right here. Or something's right in a way that I don't understand. But it gets your attention. And even Moses, when he penned the story of Melchizedek, and it was dispersed among the Jews, it would have surprised them because Moses was the one who wrote the words, let one man be a king and another man be a priest. This is a notable thing. Melchizedek is a king and a priest. The powers are melded in him. Now besides the combination of powers, equally surprising is that Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. And without going into all the technical details, that is almost certainly meaning that he is a, a priest of the God who Abraham worships. He is not just a priest of some random God in his culture. He is worshiping the one and only true God. Now how he came to serve this one and, and only true God in this manner is just a matter of speculation. But as Don Carson points out, we shouldn't be surprised that some peoples from the time of Noah downward retained the rightful worship of Noah's God. That's very possible. It's possible that people more than just in the Jerusalem area were worshiping the one true God. That is possible. Another possibility is that Abraham came into the promised land and began evangelizing, if you will. It's possible that through his example and through his influence and through his words that he persuaded peoples to worship the one true God. We don't really know why Melchizedek worshipped the God that he worshipped. All we know for sure is that he was the king priest of Salem and he served as a king priest of the most high God of Abraham's God. That is that's very, very important. Note that in your minds. Second thing that the author says about Melchizedek is that he blessed Abraham and he received tithes from Abraham. This is verses 1 and 2. With regard to the blessing, this is all that Melchizedek said to him. It's very short and sweet. He said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, period. That's the totality of the blessing. And then he did add, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into, into your, your hands. So that's the blessing. Very short and sweet, but very powerful. And the most important point here is to understand that Melchizedek spoke this blessing over Abraham because he had authority over Abraham. This is going to become very important. To further demonstrate the fact of Melchizedek's authority over Abraham, Abraham, without any hesitation or even conversation, handed 10% of all the spoils he had just won in war. He took 10% of all of that and gave it to Melchizedek. In fact, the, the Hebrew word he, here means that he took the top of the heap. So he took the very best of the spoils, the best of the best, and he gave them to Melchizedek as an offering to God, which shows again that Melchizedek had authority over Abraham. He blessed him, he received tithes from him, and therefore he had authority over him. Please Note that. So he's a king priest, and he's a man who has authority over Abraham. These things are going to become very important in the rest of chapter 7. Third, the author says that Melchizedek is by name and by title, first of all, king of righteousness, and then he is the king of peace. Verse 2. Now the words king of righteousness simply translate his name. So some people have suggested that this name means that he was likely a manifestation of Jesus Christ, but that isn't necessarily the case at all. 
Many leaders in his day, and in fact throughout the Old Testament, they take names that when they're translated, they mean very grandiose things. And those people don't actually live up to their names, but they have those names nonetheless. And so if we take Genesis 14 at face value, what we have is a real man who is a real king over a real city who happens to be named Melchizedek or King of Righteousness. This is simply his name. There's meaning to this name, but it does not mean necessarily that he is Jesus. Now next, he is also called the King of Peace because he's the king of a city that's named Salem, and, that, and Salem means peace. So he's the king of peace, but don't get in your mind so much a title as a, a title of him as, as far as his character goes, but realize that there's this city named Peace. He's the king over peace, so he's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Both of these things matter. Both of these things are significant as to how Melchizedek relates to Jesus, but they do not mean that Melchizedek is Jesus. They mean that he's a man named King of Righteousness who is the king over a city called Peace. Fourth thing. In verse 3, the author now moves on from just stating plain facts from Genesis 14. To this point, he's just been saying what anybody could see in the text. And now he begins to offer some interpretation mainly from what the text does not say. So when the text of the Bible is silent about something, that's something that we have to pay attention to. John Calvin argued that God inspired the silent things as much as he did the words that are there. And sometimes silence really isn't very meaningful, but other times when you expect noise, silence is very meaningful. Like if you send your, your kids to go play in the playroom and you're expecting them to make noise and you're not hearing any noise, believe me, every parent's going, uh-oh, something's wrong, Right? So when you hear silence, and you're not supposed to hear silence, something goes, oh, what's, what's happening here? And that's what we get into in, in this fourth point. Specifically, the author of Hebrews says that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, that he neither has beginning of days nor end of life. Now to us, not being in their culture, that could very much sound like a claim that Melchizedek is some kind of divine being or an angel or something like that. But to the author of Hebrews, and to Jews in general, this is more likely referring to what would have been to them the very odd fact that for Melchizedek, there is no genealogy in the Bible. You think about all the major figures in the Bible that you know of. Basically, from my memory, every one of them has a genealogy of where they came from, who their ancestors were, who their descendants were. Even Jesus Christ. We know his lineage all the way back to Adam. We know his father. We know his mother. We know the beginning of his days. We know the end of his days. Everyone who is someone in the Bible has a genealogy. You're expecting noise here. You expect to see something about Melchizedek that you don't even see for Jesus. There is no genealogy. The author of Hebrews, I think, is pointing out this fact we have no knowledge about the beginning of his days or the end of his life. He's not necessarily saying that Melchizedek is an eternal being. He's saying that we don't have any knowledge about where this guy came from or where he went. And so, if you take Genesis 14 at face value, I think what we have in Melchizedek is a real man who served as a king priest over the city of Salem over a period of time for whom we have no genealogical records. So this sets him up to be an amazing foreshadow of Jesus, but it does not necessarily mean that he is Jesus. 
Now, you are neither a sinner nor a heretic if you believe that Melchizedek is Jesus. But I, I don't think that that is the right way to, to think about it. And I, and I will tell you directly, there's nowhere in the Bible that teaches us that Melchizedek is Jesus. Those who believe that believe it by inference and not by direct teaching. This leads me now to the fifth assertion about Melchizedek. Namely, the text says in verse 3 that he resembles the Son of God and continues a priest forever. Or to translate that last phrase a little bit more literally, it says that he remains a priest without interruption. Or he remains a priest in perpetuity. Now that's different than saying forever. And I wish ESV would have translated it differently because when the Bible says that Jesus continues forever, it actually uses different Greek words. These Greek words don't mean forever. They're, they're interpreting it to mean forever. What it literally says is that Melchizedek remains as a priest in perpetuity. And we'll get back to that in a few minutes. For now, I want to say that when the author says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, he uses a word that more literally means that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. He was made like the Son of God. So if this morning, if you have the NASB with you, or if you have the King James Version, or if you have the New King James Version, you will see that that's how they actually translate this verse, that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God, and that is the right translation. And when you read it like that, at least for me, I could not help but think of Genesis 1.26, which says what? It says that God made man in his image. Male and female, he created them. He made us like God. We were not God. We will never be God, but we are like God, made in the image of God. This is a very similar word. Melchizedek is made like the Son of God, but it does not say that he actually is God. Now, historically speaking, Melchizedek came first, and then about 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ came to the earth. But the Bible does not say here that Jesus was made in the likeness of Melchizedek. Notice this. It says that Melchizedek Melchizedek was made to be like Jesus. That's very important. Jesus was not made to be like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was made to be like Jesus. So as I pondered this, here's what I see. Jesus existed before Melchizedek did. Melchizedek was a man who lived on this earth and was fashioned to be a foreshadow of Christ and a very good one. And then later, 2,000 years later, Jesus comes to the earth to fulfill the foreshadow of himself. But in this picture, Melchizedek and Jesus are not one and the same. They are two different people. Now, as one who resembles Jesus, his priesthood, Melchizedek's priesthood, remained in effect until the time when Jesus came to fulfill that priesthood. We're going to press into this a lot more next week. This is why this will be a test, right? See if you're a solid food person or a milk person. The details of of the Levitical and Melchizedekian priesthood are not exactly front page news in the New York Times right now, right? But in the mind of God, it's extremely important. And next week we'll press into those details. But for now, I want to say that I take this to mean that Melchizedek's uh, priesthood endures. What I think this means is that the effects of his blessing upon Abraham remained valid until Jesus Christ came. So the, 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 
the implications of his ministry endured and endured and endured and endured throughout the ages until Jesus came to be the fulfillment of those things. And the blessing he spoke upon Abraham still remains valid in Jesus Christ. So in a sense, the Levitical priests were doing one thing after another that was falling away and falling away and falling away. And we'll see that next week. But for Melchizedek, he did one thing, really. One thing. He blessed Abraham, he received tithes from him, and the power of that one act endured, really, forever. To make this more clear, the author points out in verses 5, 6, and 8, that whereas the Levitical priest took tithes from the people who were their kinsmen, Melchizedek took tithes from the father of their nation and blessed him who had the promises of God inside of his body. In fact, look at chapter, or verses 9 and 10. It's a very interesting point that he makes there. He says there that it is no stretch of the imagination to say that even Levi, the priest who received the people's offerings, in a way paid his tithes to Melchizedek because the seed of Levi was still inside of Abraham's body when Abraham gave his tithes. Now, beloved, this is not just fanciful speculation on the author's part, like, like wouldn't it be cool if this was that way or if that was this way? This is not a matter of, like, of debating how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. He's trying to do something here that will have a, a, a very strong effect later in the chapter. He's saying that if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Abraham is greater than Levi, then therefore Melchizedek is greater than Levi, and he's greater than all of the Levitical priests. He's greater than the whole sacrificial system. He trumps them. That will become extremely important, so please note that and remember that. So, who is Melchizedek? Well, in my estimation, he was simply a man who served as the king-priest of a city called Salem, probably Jerusalem. He is greater than Abraham, a fact which is proved by the blessing he bestowed upon him and the tithes he received from him. He is greater than Levi and the Levitical priesthood, and therefore he becomes a fitting foreshadow of Christ. So there are really three things that the author is going to pick up and make a big deal about in the coming chapters. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Levi and all of those priests. And third thing, he is a fitting foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Now I know that some of you believe that Melchizedek is more than this, because I've talked to you about it. Or at least some of you are wondering. Some of you have a, 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 a thought that Melchizedek may in fact be Jesus. And I want to say again that you're no heretic to believe that. And you can accurately interpret the main points of Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 and hold that position. So you're not you know, way, way off in left field to hold that position. But I do want to tell you that I think it's a wrong point of view. And I'll just give you three quick reasons why I think it's a wrong point of view and leave you to meditate on these things on your own. I'd love to debate you about this in coffee shops. It will be very friendly. It will be very fun to sit in public and talk about Melchizedek. Wouldn't that be a blast? First, on the face of the text, if you just take Genesis 14 at face value and in a way pretend like you don't know what you know, then what you see is a man who is a king, a real man who is a real king of a real city in a real place at a real time on the earth. He was just a man who served as a king priest on this earth. David and the author of Hebrews point to him as a foreshadow of Christ, the great king priest to come, but they never say that he is Jesus Christ. 
And it seems to me that if he is Jesus Christ, that the author of Hebrews could have got a lot out of just pointing that out, but he never points that out. Second thing, he is interested to show how great Melchizedek is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's trying to say that he is Jesus. Second thing, and this is the most important thing, if you hold that Melchizedek is Jesus, then you have to grapple with a very, very serious theological issue. And here it is. If you think Melchizedek was Jesus, you have an incarnation before the incarnation. Think about that. Melchizedek sort of drops in and out of the scene in the Bible, but the Bible paints a picture of him as a man who lived day by day by day by day by day by day by day as the real king of a real city. So if you think that was Jesus, what you have is Jesus walking on this earth, talking on this earth, eating on this earth, drinking on this earth, leading on this earth, ruling on this earth, living a full-orbed life on this earth before he ever came to earth through the Virgin Mary. You have an incarnation before the incarnation, and I find that a problem that is just too large to overcome. And for me, that completely takes the possibility off the table that Melchizedek is Jesus. I don't think he is or that he could be. Open to your feedback, but that's, that's where I'm at right now. And no matter what you, if you agree with me or not, you have to grapple with this issue. What do you do about an incarnation before the incarnation? Third thing, I prayed, meditated, thought, formed my own opinion on this over about two months of time. And then I went and read, read other people's works. And I just want to, I, I wanted to say that because I want to be an example to you in that way. That when you have a serious question in your mind about anything, go first to the Bible and do the hard work. Go first to the Holy Spirit and ask Him to give you insight. Don't trust in men or women who comment on the Bible. I respect my teachers, but I depend upon Jesus Christ alone. So go to the Word, go to the Lord. And I did that, and I formed my opinion about who I thought Melchizedek was, but I'm still open. Like, what are other people thinking? And I did a whole lot of reading about this. And i got to tell you, I was surprised to see how much consensus there is that Melchizedek is simply a man who serves as a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Let me just tell you a few of the highlighted names. Some of these names you won't know, but all these people are major Hebrews scholars, every one of them. John Calvin and other reformers held this position. Brooke Westcott, who was responsible for putting the Greek text together in the 1800s along with Hort, so the Hort and Westcott text, this guy held that Melchizedek was just a man and the king of a city. Now some commentators. Thomas Hewitt, Leon Morris, thank you Jason for those. He lent me his commentaries. William Lane, Peter O'Brien, who probably put together the best commentary on Hebrews in our time. It was published in 2010. Peter O'Brien on the letter to the Hebrews or whatever it is, he holds this position. F.F. Bruce, who is a huge name in the theological world. Don Carson, more of a pastoral commentator. Warren Wiersbe holds this position. R.C. Sproul and many others that are in the newer Reformed world. And finally, the one that I'll mention finally at least, David Chapman. He's the guy who penned all the notes for, the Hebrews, for Hebrews in the ESV Study Bible. So if you have the ESV Study Bible, look at the notes there and you'll see that they take this position. David Chapman is the one who actually wrote that out. Now this is a very partial list. I could have named many, many more names, but the point I was trying to make is that there is great consensus among people who spend their lives studying the Bible that Melchizedek was simply a man who served as a foreshadow of Christ. 
And the more important things are that he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than Levi, and again, he foreshadows Jesus Christ. So I'll leave that to you now. And again, I really would love to discuss any of this with you. I'm, I'm still open. I feel pretty convinced, but I'm still open to discussion. So again, what do we really need to know about him? We need to know those three things. Greater than Abraham, greater than Levi, a good foreshadow of Christ. Now, let me just very briefly, about three minutes, address this question. If that is who Melchizedek is, or whoever you think he is, why should we care about him? Even if I had a lot of time today to answer this question, I would only give you one answer today because I think it's the most important answer. And my answer is this. We should care about Melchizedek because our father cares about Melchizedek. That's why. This is why this is a gauge of where our hearts are at before the Lord. As children of God who want to seek to know and love our Father, we should care about the things that our Father cares about, even if we don't really get the point immediately. When my Father says, Charlie, I got something to show you. Come, I want to show you. And beloved, I want this heart of mine to say, yes, Father. Yes, Father. I care about what you care about. And honestly, I don't care if it relates to the details of my life right now. Well, think about that later. All I know is my father is inviting me on a journey, and I want to go with him. So why should we care about Melchizedek? Well, because I'll tell you, God, your father, if you're a believer in Jesus, God, your father, makes a big deal about Melchizedek. So come and care about what your father cares about, and later you'll see the implications. Later, you will see that because Melchizedek is who he is, Jesus Christ is the kind of high priest that he is. The, the pattern that God set in Melchizedek brought about a priest in Jesus who lives every day to intercede for us, to call out our names before his Father at the throne of grace, to be on our side, to call down help, to call down wisdom, to call down resources, to call down power. All of this is because Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek and not in the line of Aaron. So does it matter who Melchizedek is? You bet it matters. It, it matters. Huge. And I hope to God that he'll give us eyes to see. But right now, I just want to say, even if you never could figure out how it matters and why it matters, Care because your Father cares. Seek to have your Father's heart. Seek to be thrilled by the things that thrill Him. Oh, that would make you a solid food person for sure, for sure. Let's pray. Lord, I want to ask for your help with that now. The truth is, Lord, that all of us in our flesh, we're partly milk, we're partly solid food, but we want to move beyond milk into solid food, Lord. We want to grow up into the things that you have designed for us from before the foundation of the world. So, Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest who is in the heavenly places, a, a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls, I ask you to help us. I ask you to wake up our minds and our hearts and our eyes and our ears that we would care about the things that you care about and understand the things that you understand. And Lord, I just want to thank you because I have an instinct that over the next three months you're going to do a great deepening work in the life of this church and I just feel so excited about it and I thank you for it and I pray for your help. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, give us help from heaven, I pray in your mighty and merciful name. Amen.